Hello, and welcome to this PrimeMed podcast entitled Asthma and COPD, a case-based approach to compare and contrast these common respiratory conditions. I'm Dr. Danielle Hebert, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner in primary care, as well as an assistant professor and coordinator of the adult gerontology primary care nurse practitioner track in the Tan Chinfen Graduate School of Nursing at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. While this episode is relevant to all primary care clinicians, it's part of a curriculum I've developed with PrimeMed, and it's designed specifically to help nurse practitioners earn the pharmacology credits they need to maintain their licensure. Check out the other courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com forward slash Hebert. Thank you for joining me as we dive into a discussion to review the similarities and differences that can present with asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and the appropriate diagnostics and treatment plans for both. We'll begin with a brief review of the diagnoses and incorporate current evidence and guidelines throughout the case studies to address common patient scenarios in primary care. First, let's quickly identify the guidelines that I'll be using during our case study review. For management of asthma, we will be reviewing recommendations from the 2020 focused updates to the asthma management guidelines, a report from the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Coordinating Committee Expert Panel Working Group, and also the Global Initiative for Asthma, or abbreviated as GINA, which is updated annually. For our review of COPD, we will be incorporating recommendations from the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or abbreviated GOLD, which is also updated yearly. Let's first compare definitions of these two respiratory diseases. According to GINA, asthma is defined as a heterogeneous disease, usually characterized by chronic airway inflammation. It is defined by the history of respiratory symptoms, such as wheeze, shortness of breath, chest tightness and cough, that vary over time and in intensity, together with variable expiratory airflow limitation. In most cases, the airway obstruction is reversible, but in a subset of people with asthma, a component of the obstruction may become irreversible. The key things to keep in mind as we move forward is that asthma is episodic, it has hyperresponsiveness, and it is reversible. Now, according to GOLD, COPD is defined as a heterogeneous lung condition that is characterized by chronic respiratory symptoms such as dyspnea, cough, sputum production, and or exacerbations due to abnormalities of the airways, inclusive of bronchitis or bronchiolitis, and or the alveoli as can be seen with emphysema, and that cause persistent, often progressive airflow obstruction. 
The key component from this definition is that COPD is chronic, persistent, and progressive. So now it's time for us to meet our first patient. Mr. J is a 59-year-old male who presents for his routine follow-up appointment for his hypertension and dyslipidemia. He reports overall that he's doing well, but he feels that his smoker's cough is worsening. He has a 25-pack year history, and he continues to smoke a half-pack per day. He reports his cough is mostly dry, but occasionally can bring up some clear sputum, mostly in the mornings. He is also reporting some shortness of breath that he first noticed about nine months ago when he would feel it while walking his usual one and a half mile loop in his neighborhood. He's had to gradually decrease his walk to a little less than a mile, and he finds he has to stop about halfway where there's a bench so he can sit to catch his breath, and then he feels he can finish his walk. Now, these are scary changes that Mr. Jones is experiencing, and thankfully he shared them with us during his visit. Let's look at what we have so far to identify risk factors that Mr. J may have for COPD. First, his primary risk factor for COPD is his 25-pack year history and his continuation to smoke. He is also reporting a progressive worsening of his dyspnea to the point that he's had to shorten his walk and he has to sit before he can continue on. Mr. Jones's presentation of dyspnea, a decrease in his activity, and a cough is a typical clinical presentation for COPD. We would want to also identify any additional COPD risk factors that Mr. J may have. On further evaluation and discussion, we learn that his family history is positive for COPD in his dad, who also happened to be a smoker. Mr. Jones works in an auto body shop where he strips and paints vehicles. He shares with us that his main source of heat for his home in the winter is two wood-burning stoves, one on each floor of his home. His chart review shows that he has had an annual upper respiratory and bronchitis infection every December for the past four years. These findings are concerning as they are also risk factors for developing COPD. Now let's quickly recap them. He had exposure to secondhand smoke while growing up as his father was a smoker. He has occupational exposure to pollutants through his job. He has air pollution in the home from the wood-burning stoves. And he also has a history of frequent respiratory infections that could contribute to a long-term reduction in his lung function. His exam in the office reveals he has decreased lung sounds and faint expiratory wheezing. We decide to send him for a chest x-ray to rule out other respiratory causes, and it shows hyperinflation, known as barrel chest, with a flattened diaphragm, a finding that can commonly be seen with COPD because the inflated lungs push down on the diaphragm. Given the information we have so far, we can make a clinical diagnosis of COPD to start him on treatment since he is symptomatic, but the diagnosis of COPD requires confirmation with spirometry. 
following the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, or GOLD guidelines, we decide to provide him an albuterol inhaler for short-term use while we wait for the results of a spirometry. Albuterol is a short-acting beta-2 agonist, or what is also referred to as SABA, that relaxes the airway smooth muscle to dilate the airway. SABAs are often a mainstay of treatment in COPD to help with episodic shortness of breath and can provide relief for four to six hours. Mr. J returns three weeks later and he reports to us he's using the albuterol inhaler twice a day with some relief, but that he continues to have shortness of breath with activity. His PFT results show that he has an FEV1 to FVC ratio that is less than 0.7, which confirms obstruction. His post-bronchodilator result is 4%, which confirms there's minimal reversibility, which confirms the COPD diagnosis. And his FEV1 is equal to or more than 80% predicted, which places him in the gold one category, which is mild for severity of airflow obstruction. Now it's important to note that GOLD made changes in their guidelines from 2022 to 2023 to simplify the steps to select treatment for the patient. They have condensed the grouping to identify pharmacologic treatment from A, B, C, and D to now A, B, and E groups, with E being combined C and D into one category. Patients who fall in group A would be treated with a bronchodilator, such as a long-acting beta agonist, or also known as LABA, or a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, or also known as LAMA. Group B and E patients would be treated with a LABA and LAMA with consideration to add an inhaled corticosteroid for those who meet certain criteria, which we will review shortly. In order to determine the treatment that Mr. J needs, we would also need to know his history of hospitalizations for COPD, the number of exacerbations he's had, and what his dyspnea scoring may be. Let's quickly review the tools that we have available to score dyspnea. The first tool that is available to us is the modified MRC dyspnea scale, which is abbreviated as MMRC. It is a simple scale ranging from zero, which indicates breathlessness is occurring with strenuous exercise, up to the level of four, which represents breathlessness is occurring to a point that it prevents the patient from leaving the house or impacting their ability to dress and undress. A second tool available is the COPD assessment test, which is abbreviated as CAT. The CAT tool contains eight items that can be scored from zero to five, with zero indicating no problem and five indicating a significant impact on the patient's physical well-being with a possible overall score that can range anywhere from zero to 40. Being that this is a new diagnosis for Mr. J, let's say his MMRC score is zero and he has not had any exacerbations or hospitalizations in the past year. 
This would place Mr. J in group A for treatment, which as we just reviewed, would be a bronchodilator, such as a long-acting beta agonist or LABA, or a long-acting muscarinic antagonist or LAMA. Inhaler options in the LABA group include formoterol and salmeterol, which can last 12 or more hours. If Mr. J was not able to tolerate the LABA, we could then switch him to a LAMA, which promotes bronchodilation through blocking cholinergic tone on the airway smooth muscle. Examples of LAMAs include teotropium bromide, eumeclidinium, and aclidinium. Additionally, we can continue him with the Saba albuterol inhaler to help with any episodic dyspnea that he is experiencing. Now, other non-pharmacological interventions need to be implemented as well. And these include things such as smoking cessation and patient education on avoidance of triggers and minimizing his risk factors. Additionally, we want to be sure that Mr. J is up to date on his vaccines, which is a recommendation by GOLD and includes Tdap, influenza, COVID-19 series or booster if needed, and PCV20 or PCV15, followed by PPSV23 one year later. It's also important to note that Mr. J is also a candidate for pulmonary rehab, which can help improve his dyspnea and fatigue while giving him some tools for energy conservation with activities. Now I'd like to stay with Mr. J and fast forward us five years because as we know, COPD is progressive. We are scheduled to see him and he is now 64 and coming in for a follow-up visit for his COPD. At this point, he has unfortunately not quit smoking, but he has decreased to a quarter pack per day, stating the damage is done and he's not quitting. He retired early as he no longer had the stamina to work on the cars and the exposure to the paint would often exacerbate his COPD. He has just had his annual PFTs, which shows his FEV1 has been progressively decreasing from his initial results with a reading that is now less than 35% predicted. And this places him in the gold three category for level of airflow obstruction. He has had two exacerbations over the past year, one of which required him to be hospitalized. And his current modified MRC dyspnea scale score is a three. The MMRC score, combined with the exacerbations and hospitalization, places Mr. J into Group E for treatment options, which is a LABA and LAMA combination, which he has now been using for the past year in the form of teotropium bromide and olodaterol. He reports he uses his albuterol inhaler about two to three times per day, depending on his activity, such as more on the days that he showers and less when he is home and doesn't have any appointments. At this point, Mr. J may be eligible for triple therapy, which includes a LABA, a LAMA, and an inhaled corticosteroid, or abbreviated as ICS. 
inhaled corticosteroids, which reduce airway inflammation, when used in moderate to very severe COPD, may help improve his lung function, his health status, and also reduce his exacerbations. There are requirements that need to be considered before placing him on an ICS due to the risks that are associated with the medication, including oral candidiasis and pneumonia. For instance, gold guidelines indicate this would be strongly considered if his blood eosinophils were 300 or more, as he meets the criteria of having had two or more exacerbations, one of which did require hospitalization. According to the gold guidelines, the use of an ICS is favorable if there has been one moderate COPD exacerbation per year and the blood eosinophils are between 100 and 300. The rationale for blood eosinophil levels is that inhaled corticosteroids have shown to be more effective with higher eosinophil levels, but little or no effect when the level is less than 100. It is understandable that you may not be comfortable making treatment decisions using eosinophil counts. It is likely at this point of Mr. J's COPD that he is being co-managed by primary care and pulmonology for monitoring, and they would order the ICS if they felt it would be beneficial for him. As previously mentioned, it's important that we readdress smoking cessation each time that we see him as long as he continues to smoke. He is someone that I would keep a close eye on with frequent monitoring every three months and as needed. For our patient, we're going to switch gears and review an asthma case. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I will be referencing the 2020 Focused Updates to the Asthma Management Guidelines, a report from the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Coordinating Committee Expert Panel Working Group, as well as the Global Initiative for Asthma or GINA Guidelines from 2023. Our patient is Miss L, who is an 18-year-old female patient that we are seeing for her college physical. She reports that she was diagnosed with asthma when she was 13, and she uses her albuterol inhaler one puff two to three times per week. She denies any nighttime symptoms and has not had any hospitalizations for asthma flares. Overall, she feels pretty well. Now, what do you think? Do you think we need to make any changes for Ms. L's asthma treatment plan? Or should we leave things as is? Our first step is that we have to determine what her asthma severity is, how is her symptoms controlled, and what risks she may have for future exacerbations. So first, asthma control should be evaluated at every opportunity. Gina has a simple tool called the Gina Symptoms Control Tool for adults and adolescents, and it includes components for symptoms control as well as identifications of risk factors that could lead to a poor outcome. The symptom control is determined by a four-week retrospective evaluation regarding frequency of symptoms on a days-per-week basis, nighttime awakening due to symptoms, use of the SABA if they have one, being more than twice per week, 
and any activities that are limited due to their asthma. Risk factors are evaluated through identification of factors such as frequent SABA use, which is defined as three or more of 200 dose canisters per year, a lack or inappropriate use of an inhaled corticosteroid, certain medical conditions such as GERD, possible smoking exposures, and several other items that can be found on the tool within the GINA website. We have two additional tools that can be used as well, such as the ASMA APGAR, which stands for Activities, Persistent, Triggers, Asthma Medications, Response to Therapy, and then we also have the Asthma Control Test, or abbreviated as ACT. The ACT tool can be used for patients who are 12 and older and is a validated questionnaire that contains five to seven items and also has a sensitivity and specificity of 70%. The APGAR tool has similar performance to the ACT tool. Let's quickly review how asthma severity is measured using the classification of asthma severity tool. This is a tool that categorizes asthma as intermittent, mild persistent, moderate persistent, or severe persistent using the level of impairment combined with reported frequency of symptoms, nighttime awakenings, frequency for use of a SABA, the interference with normal activity, and lung function results. Using the information we have provided from Ms. L, we do not have all of the information needed to determine her severity, as we lack her level of impairment, which is determined by her FEV1 result. We do a quick chart review, and we find that she had a pulmonary function testing every two years, with the last test done one year ago, and it shows a normal FEV1 FVC ratio and an FEV1 that is more than 80% of predicted, which, when this is combined with the other information she provided to us, places her in the mild persistent asthma category. Now that we know more about evaluating asthma severity and symptom control, let's look further at Ms. L's chart for the information we need. We'd want to look at the prescribing history in the chart to see how often she is requesting refills for her albuterol inhaler. Let's say she fills her albuterol inhaler about once a year. Should we keep her on the albuterol inhaler? And do you think this is the best treatment for Ms. L? In order to answer these questions, we have to look at the guidelines. According to Gina, there is an increased risk of severe exacerbations for patients who had higher than average use of their SABAs. Ms. L has demonstrated that she is not using her albuterol inhaler excessively as she refills it once per year. But given her young age and good control, do we have opportunity at this visit to make a change and reduce Ms. L's future risk of severe exacerbations? Well, with Ms. L's asthma severity level, which is mild persistent, she would fall under step two therapy. We have two tracks to choose from with the GINA guideline. Track one recommends the preferred inhaler is an anti-inflammatory reliever or a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, which I mentioned previously is abbreviated as ICS, 
and that the ICS be combined with formoterol, which can be used as needed for steps one to two. Additionally, the same inhaler can be used as a maintenance inhaler in step three, and it can be stepped up to a medium dose maintenance inhaler for step four with continued use of the low dose as needed. Track one can help to reduce risk of severe exacerbations when compared to a use of a SABA alone. Data shows that the combination ICS for Moderol offers the same control for symptoms as a SABA with the ease of a combo therapy in one inhaler that can be stepped up or stepped down. Now these guidelines also offer us a second track for treatment that incorporates the use of an ICS whenever the patient should use a SABA. The regimen is slightly different in that step two would indicate the use of the low dose maintenance ICS with use of the ICS and SABA as needed or the SABA alone as needed. Gina does recommend that this track be utilized for patients that are stable, have had no exacerbations in the past year, and will have good adherence to the recommendations of the ICS and SABA. There are concerns with this track though, and that patients may not use the ICS and revert to solo use of the SABA, which we know can increase risk of severe exacerbations. Now we can also look at the 2020 focused updates to the asthma management guidelines, a report from the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Coordinating Committee Expert Panel Working Group, which also has two track recommendations. In their preferred track, step one recommends use of a PRN or as needed SABA, which is different from GINA, but their step two recommends a daily low dose ICS and PRN SABA or PRN use of the ICS and SABA together. Their step three recommends use of a daily and PRN combination of low dose ICS and formoterol. Now their alternative track does not have a recommendation for step one but it does recommend the use of a daily leukotriene receptor antagonist, which is abbreviated as LTRA, with a PRN SABA in step two, and a daily medium dose ICS and PRN SABA in step three. Now let's go back to Ms. L. With the current evidence-based medicine, I would recommend that Ms. L change her treatment to an as-needed low-dose ICS for moderol combination. The use of the ICS will reduce the airway inflammation, while the formoterol will relax the airway smooth muscle to dilate the airway. Now, this can be a big change for someone to make, as many people are hesitant to give up their SABA out of fear that they will not have relief when experiencing shortness of breath. Much of this though can be changed with patient education so that our patients are more comfortable with their medication regimen. Now, if Ms. L is not ready to make this change, we can follow track two as she has not had any exacerbations in the past year 
and has demonstrated adherence with her treatment plan since she is only filling her albuterol inhaler once per year. In this instance, I would still recommend the use of the ICS as a low-dose maintenance treatment that Ms. L could use twice daily and still be able to use her SABA as needed, but would likely encourage and recommend that she use her ICS SABA together as her PRN treatment for better long-term outcomes. This is a good example of shared decision-making with the patient to discuss what she feels is an appropriate treatment plan for her. Let's do another asthma case study. We're now going to meet Mr. W, a 48-year-old male who has had asthma for most of his life and has generally good control since being switched to his low-dose budesonide, which is an ICS, and formoterol combo, which he takes twice per day, with an as-needed dose being used one to two times per week, depending on his activity or the weather. He has scheduled an acute visit today as he has had cold symptoms for the past week that have triggered an asthma flare. He has maintained his low-dose budesonide for moderol twice daily, but is now also using one puff four to five times during the day as he's feeling tight and wheezy. Over the past two nights, he has awoken to coughing and tightness, which required him to use his inhaler, which he has not had to do in the past. He has also had to stay home from work for the past two days due to not feeling well. He denies any fever and describes his cough as dry and tight. Now, this is a very different presentation when compared to Ms. L, as Mr. W is experiencing an acute asthma flare, which has significantly increased his use of his bedesonide for moderol inhaler, but he continues to experience symptoms. He is at significant risk for hospitalization if his symptoms are not controlled. He likely needs to have a step up in treatment, but before doing that, we want to be sure there are no other factors that could be contributing, such as having him demonstrate inhaler technique, confirming he is not smoking, or that he does not have any other exposures that could be affecting him. Once these items are confirmed, we'd want to step him up from step three to step four which is a medium-dose budesonide for moderol combination with continued as-needed low-dose budesonide for moderol. The combo inhaler offers ease with treatment as we would instruct him to take two puffs of his inhaler twice daily with the continued one puff as needed. Now, this is also a presentation where you'd want to consider the use of oral corticosteroids such as prednisone. We'd need more information to determine the appropriateness of this treatment, though. As part of our evaluation, I'd have Mr. W complete a peak flow assessment to determine his chest tightness. Ideally, this would be something he's monitoring at home so that he can identify when his asthma control is worsening, which would then give us a baseline level to compare to. As part of asthma management, we should be providing asthma action plans that guide our patients on use of their peak flows to monitor for when they are in the green zone, which represents 80 to 100% of normal for the patient, the yellow zone, which is equal to 50 to 80%, or the red zone, which is less than 50% of their normal rate. I would give him an albuterol nebulizer treatment in the office as well to help open up his airway 
and then treat him with 40 milligrams of prednisone daily for five days. Having him come back to see me in 48 hours for close monitoring, but with the understanding if his symptoms worsened that he would need to seek immediate medical attention from the emergency department. As patients with asthma can worsen quickly and significantly, we do need to monitor them closely. Once he has been stepped up in treatment, we would need to determine if the bump up would be short term for a couple of weeks or if he may need longer as some patients do stay on the increased dosing for two to three months. This determination would be based on his response to the treatment and his asthma symptom control. Once determined that he is well controlled, we would need to put together a careful plan to titrate him back to a lower dose that continues to control his symptoms and also minimize his risk for exacerbations. So let's go back to Mr. W. He returns to see us after 48 hours and he reports his tightness is improving with the bump up in dose and the prednisone. He reports no further nighttime symptoms and his PRN use is about three times per day. We opt to have him finish out the prednisone burst and have him come back again in another five days as he'll be off the prednisone by that point and we can see how his symptoms are doing in case there's any rebound or worsening. At his return visit, he reports feeling better and he's using his PRN dose two to three times per day. Given that he is feeling better, but still using the PRN dose two to three times per day, I would recommend that we keep him on the higher dosing for another two weeks to see how he's doing. After an additional three weeks, Mr. W reports to us he's slowly getting back to his baseline with the use of the PRN inhaler twice daily. Given that it's been just about a month at this point, I would opt to keep him on the higher step three therapy for another month and have him come back again for reevaluation. I would repeat the sequence for monitoring until he felt that he was well controlled and he had no respiratory infections occurring. We would reassess his asthma symptom control and risk factors and also update his asthma treatment plan to reflect the back titrating of his dosing. When titrating down, you want to decrease the inhaled corticosteroid dose by 25 to 50% using two to three month intervals until Mr. W reaches a level or step that is the lowest dose of the medication that is controlling his symptoms and exacerbations and with which he has minimal side effects which for Mr. W will likely be step two, since that is where he was prior to his respiratory infection. That brings us to the end of our session. Thank you for joining me for this case study review on management of asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease.